Hello all, and welcome back to From the Front Row. I'm Steve Sonye, and today we'll be chatting with Mei Kwong from the Center for Connected Health Policy. The Center for Connected Health Policy is dedicated to integrating telehealth virtual technologies into the healthcare system through advancing sound policy based on objective research and informed practices. May joined CCHP in March 2010 as a policy associate and was named executive director in January 2018. Mrs. Kwong leads the organization's work on public policy issues as they impact telehealth on the state and federal level. She is also the project director for the National Telehealth Policy Resource Center. Mrs. Kwong is a nationally recognized expert on telehealth policy. In her current role at CCHP, she works with the organization's multitude of national and regional partners on telehealth issues and oversees CCHP's projects, provides policy technical assistance to state and federal lawmakers, industry members, providers, consumers, and others. Mrs. Kwong holds a BA in International Affairs from George Washington University and a JD from George Washington University Law School. May, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you, Steve. Thanks for having me. So to start us off, how many calls and requests did CCHP field on an average week compared to now with the developing COVID-19 pandemic? Oh, I would say we've probably seen close to like a four to 500% increase in requests. And also the types of requests have been much more varied now with COVID-19. And with that 400 to 500% increase, are you seeing them from policymakers, healthcare stakeholders? What's kind of the nature of most of the inquiries that we're seeing coming up for CCHP? As I said, it's it's a pretty wide range. So typically CCHP, we will basically help anybody who has a telehealth policy questions. But in the in the past, before COVID-19, it's usually been providers, policymakers who have usually engaged with us. Now we're not only seeing an increase in providers and policymakers, but more organization-wide national or state organizations uh, that deal with specific populations such as, um, you know, associations for medical groups and so forth who have been asking us for help. But we're also seeing really an increase too, which surprised us of just consumers who are asking about how can I get help for COVID-19 and, and what should I do and how does telehealth work into it? How do I get telehealth? So not only have the numbers increased, but really kind of the spectrum of people who have been engaging CCHP has as well, too. And it's great to have a foundational resource like yours, especially now when we've got this period of rapid policy innovation. With regards to all of you know, these new developments, are there specific achievements or challenges for telehealth and telemedicine at this time? Yeah, one of the, the problems with the telehealth policy that's out there is that it was basically different for, for every state, and the state and federal telehealth policies differ as well. So even before COVID-19, there was always confusion, especially if you were trying to operate in multiple states, of what exactly the telehealth policy was, because no two states were alike, the Medicaid and Medicare policies differed from each other, and then if you want to even go down into like another level, you, you had um, health plans who had different telehealth policies as well. We always refer to it as a crazy quilt. Now with COVID-19, what you're seeing are 
emergency policies or policies that are being passed quickly to like try to address it, to try to create more flexibility. So it's changing so rapidly. Just to, to give you an idea, we've been trying to put out updated information on the policy changes and we've had to do that on a daily basis. It's just because it's just moving so rapidly, not only on the federal level, but on state levels as well. And when you're going through and talking about this, you know, rapid period of creating policies, you know, usually when we're seeing health policies go through at even state and federal level, it can take years for ideas to shift form, you know, health bills are notorious for failing constantly. In this mm-hmm. area, is there a concern about passing these policies relatively quickly and the possible, uh, you know, unintended consequences that come about of them? I don't think so, because what was actually sort of good with the telehealth issues and why you had different policies is before COVID-19, you did have some policies, some states who were perhaps a little bit more progressive in their thinking. So it's not as if in some of these states where they're passing something that's a little bit more progressive than what they had before, that they're doing it blindly or there's been no experience with that type of policy happening in other places. They can look to another state. For example, California actually really um, updated a lot of their Medicaid policies for telehealth just a few months ago that gave it a lot more flexibility. Um, There's still some things there, but there was, it was much more expansive than a lot of other states. So there is sort of essentially kind of a safety net there for policymakers in other locations of like, you know, is this dangerous that we're expanding, that they had an example in other locations where they did expand their policies and, you know, the the roof did not fall in on them, that they knew that it was something that was not going to be uh, too, too egregious, have too much of an egregious effect. And to that point, too, with, you know, trying to adopt as soon as possible, even though the previous research has been done with it, do you think that this pandemic really could be a shifting force for telemedicine reimbursement policies? Because I know, and what I understand, the reimbursement side of thing is one of the largest barriers for adoption in general. Yeah, it's, it's definitely been one of the largest barriers, and it goes back to the policies again, because a lot of the policies that have acted as barriers to tel- um, telehealth have been centered around reimbursement, and that's actually where you have a lot of your established telehealth policies. How do you get paid for it and the limitations around there? So, um, yes, it's still, I hate to couch it as saying it's an opportunity for telehealth because this is such a dire circumstance, and it's very serious, but it, it, it it does present this opportunity for telehealth to be used more widely, to be integrated more fully into health systems. And that um, would require some policy changes. So a lot of the policy changes that are happening now are an emergency status or an emergency situation. So it could revert back once the emergency is over. Um, there is the hope that like doing it in this emergency situation, you know, people will recognize the value of telehealth and hopefully some of the policies will stick around once we get through this. And with regards to the value that telehealth brings, you know, we're seeing a lot of rapid innovation with it and, and widespread diffusion. But I know that a common concern with telemedicine and telehealth too is that it could supplant brick and mortar physicians, folks who are doing, you know, in hospital, in clinic services rather than support them or independent physicians as well. When we're talking about the conversation of parity, the idea that, you know, telehealth should be reimbursed equivalent to in-person clinical services, how should we kind of approach that conversation, especially now with these changes? Well, there's always the, you know, <laughs> when when you bring this up to providers, they also say, but my 
But what I do when I do it via telehealth, my knowledge and expertise is still the same whether I do it via telehealth or in person. So they are using their same experience, their, their same knowledge when they are doing it regardless of what modality they do it for. It's, it's not a different service. Telehealth is not a different service. It's just a different way or of delivering the service. It's a different tool for the provider to use in their toolbox when they provide services. Uh, telehealth is not going to supplant brick and mortar because there are some things, even as a telehealth advocate, that I say you cannot do over telehealth. So there will still be the need for the brick and mortar. There will still be the need for in-person services. Again, it's, it's simply just another tool for the provider to utilize when they think it's appropriate to use. And that's always been CCHP's position in that for the policies, the policies should be structured in a way that it's given as an option to providers to use when they think it's appropriate to use. Um, because working in policy, I am not there with the provider in that particular situation dealing with that specific patient. Who am I to say that you know, they should be using telehealth for that? I'm not the person who's best to judge that. That's the provider with the patient's you know, willingness and agreement to utilize telehealth. Yeah, I think you highlight it very well. This is a tool. This is an opportunity to be used. With that side of things, too, we're seeing, you know, record numbers of people trying to use the telehealth system and now seeing shortage of telehealth providers and practitioners on board. Mm -hmm. Are there policies or procedures kind of coming up to play to recruit uh, certain physicians or other folks into these or to train up providers on expanding their technological know-how? Um, definitely now at this time there is. So that's actually a lot of the questions that I've been getting as a as a telehealth resource center is, um, you know, how, wh what do we do now? How do we add more more people? I handle it more on the policy end. So a lot of the questions that I get as the policy center is more of, uh, you know, we're running into licensure issues and requirements there or credentialing requirements. If you talk to the regional resource centers who actually do program operational level um, assistance where they build up programs, it is, you know, they're, they're talking more about the training and like, you know, what do you do like during a telehealth interaction? And we work together to try to also create tools for, for those who are asking these questions and what do they do in these situations? How do they train? How do they um, deal with, you know, the unexpected? Like, for example, if like your internet connection, your broadband connection goes down during like an interaction and the best practices that way. So all these questions, have come up and you know they would normally come up without like COVID-19 but now with COVID-19 it's just really accelerating everything and like you know creating more demand and more pressure of like you know trying to do this and trying to do it quickly. I know when working with the telehealth resource centers we're, we're trying to help folks to do that to do this more quickly but we also want to ensure that they still you know keep the safety of the patient in, in mind as well with doing this and not to do it in a way where you would not have those best practices in place and you would not be providing, you know, that effective and safe care to the patient too. Right. And I think that's another point to hammer home too, is the idea of telehealth is we want to make sure that the quality is there and that patient safety and outcomes are our number one priority with it. And that kind of builds mm -hmm. on to this, you know, next idea too. We have this new waiver through CMS, this new 1135 waiver where Medicare can now, for telehealth, pay for office, hospital, other visits, and it even extends telehealth visits to a place of residence. 
And so mm-hmm. going forward with this, you know, the Department of Health and Human Services is saying, you know, we want to respect the required patient provider relationship, but we're not going to conduct audits to ensure that such a prior relationship exists for claims submitted during this emergency. Should we be concerned about fraudulent telehealth claims given this situation? I don't think we should, because for one thing, um, that that is what they are doing for Medicare. But they have to keep in mind, people have to keep in mind that while the feds did certain waivers for Medicare, they still need to like, they are still dealing with state law as well. So they're still dealing with like licensing laws, they're still dealing with credentialing laws, they're still dealing with other regulations that sort of act as checks and balances for this. So it's, it's, they may be saying like, okay, for Medicare, we're not going to like audit this, um, this particular thing that you've established a patient provider relationship for Medicare reimbursement, we're waiving the licensure, you know, requirement that you're licensed in the patient's state, but that's on Medicare reimbursement. What you're still also going to have to do and what providers need to understand is like there's still state laws and state um, regulations that you will need to like abide by unless the state has waived them and they have loosened some of those up, but they haven't loosened all of them up yet. So there's still some checks and balances there. And then going along with that, too, you've mentioned kind of provider regulations, provider licensures. Can you talk a little bit about this uh, idea of an interstate compact? Do we see more people coming on board with this interstate compact and trying to breach provider availability through that method? Yeah, so there's a couple of different compacts and they're set up in different ways. So the the one, the two one two ones that most people are familiar with are the nurses compacts and the one for physicians. So the nurses compact is the one license. I'm licensed in one state and I can practice in in, in any compact member state without having to get another license in those other states, whereas the physician compact is I'm licensed in a compact member state, I can go through an expedited process to get licensed in another compact member state. So the physician one isn't like one license practice in multiple states, it's one license, get it faster in other states. So that has been um, one of the, the things, and some of them are a little bit newer, some of the compacts that are out there are a little bit newer. I've heard good things about the physicians compact and that you know they physicians who've gone through that said like the expedited process was very quick and um, efficient um, the nurses I've, I've heard it's been a lot easier for them obviously because they have the one license and they can practice in multiple states how that works with this particular environment with um, COVID-19 again on the licensure issue Medicare has weight that required, but you still have like state laws and regulations. So it's it's varied in how the states have reacted to that and how they're loosening up what their licensure requirements are. So I'm not sure, you know, where the compacts will fall into this. It, it's going to depend a little bit more probably on like the uh, regulations that the each individual state might loosen and what they might do for it. Obviously, with the nurses compact, it's a little bit easier. You've got a nurse who can like, you know, operate then in multiple states as long as they're compact member states. And it does provide a very good opportunity for, you know, growth and proliferation of these combats. And going forward, it'll be interesting to see what exactly comes out of them. Yeah, they've had pretty steady growth. They've had a pretty steady growth um, for a while. Like, there's quite a few number of states who are members of like those two compacts. Is California currently one of the members of those compacts? I don't know if they do that with the telehealth side of things. 
Nope, not California. Interesting. Not a member of either one. Do you know specifically on those reasons why California hasn't decided to join on this? Um, some of the reasons I have heard have been concerns of that they wish to have more authority over a licensee who, you know, might be, there might be questions about them or a bad actor and they would not have as much, you know, control or power over them if they were like out of state. And then another key component with the telehealth delivery side of things is access, right? We want to make sure that we've got proper rural broadband and broadband in general. Otherwise, you know, the service can't be provided. Do you see, you know, offices of rural broadband or, or other entities coming up to kind of provide this service to folks who may need it the most, who can't, you know, access, you know, healthcare via normal means? Yeah, I have heard that the FCC is looking into something. I've not heard any details on what that is, but that is definitely like an issue. There are regions, you know, in rural areas and remote areas that just don't have the connectivity and without the connectivity, telehealth won't work. That's part of the reason why with some of these emergency procedures, you're seeing phone raise a lot and typically phone is not considered telehealth. There are, most of the states actually have as their definition for telehealth or telemedicine, whatever term they're using, they explicitly exclude phones. So why sometimes on some of these policy emergency waivers, you'll see something like telehealth or phone, like that is why phone is called out. It's because it's usually not underneath their definition. So they do have to call it out specifically. But that's been kind of the fallback really for like these regions of where, well, they don't have connectivity to do telehealth. So we have to fall back on phone or also in talking with some senior advocates, they're also saying, you know, seniors don't have access to the technology. All they have is their phone. So this is, that's why you're, you're seeing in a lot of these emergency type of waivers or something to phone being called out specifically. And I know that one of the issues that's been brought up in the past about phone is the quality of service potentially versus, you know, it's a different connection of an audio visual is different than just an audio. Mm -hmm. connection. Do you see that sticking around and advocates for telemedicine saying, hey, until we fix this connectivity side of things, we should really allow telephone to be included in it based on the COVID experience? I can see some, and like with anything, I can see some people do advocating for that and others not. Um, there, there is concern. There, video is considered better because you can like pick up on you know visual cues like physical changes, expression of the patient, and so forth that you may not get over phone. But uh, some things can happen over phone. I think you're going to probably see people who are split. Texting is another thing that you're probably going to see people, whereas texting has not been sort of one of the options, widespread options that people using like phone has been. Uh, when you're talking about policy changes, there are some people in the field have said like you should include texting as well um, among these things. Um, so I can see when all this is over, since phone has actually been used, you know, some advocates saying like it should be, it should stick around. You should still have that option. And I know now, even though it's not really been an option anywhere where people said, like, we're going to allow texting to, I do know some people have inquired, like, can we do texting as well? And dialing into that, too, of, you know, what we expect or what we have seen in terms of policy making for this. Prior to COVID-19, what were some ways that CCHP was successful in impacting the decisions of policymakers and other healthcare stakeholders? 
So um, just to also clarify for, for your folks out there, so CCHP does not lobby. So mm -hmm. we have not done any lobbying or advocating. What we act as a is a technical assistance and informational organization. But that's also been very good because people have also seen us as a neutral party as well. Mm -hmm. So it has really been when, when we put out something, when we say something, it is really about the policy. We're not going one way or another. When people ask if they say like, well, who's your constituency? Who, who do you care about? And it's like, really, it's the patient then. If you want to, if you ask me to drill down deep on that and like pick a, pick a group, it's like, it's the patient to make sure that they can get services in a safe and effective manner. So that has been a, a benefit to us that in what we put out, people have this assurance of that we're not skewing it one way or the other. It is really about like how best to use this. So with that in mind, I, I can't point to like, oh, well, we lobbied and successfully got this bill passed. But what I can point to is that with informa uh, informational resources and our expertise, we have been called upon to provide technical assistance or information on various pieces of policy. One of the first things that CCHP did, and actually was one of my first projects, was we wrote the model language for the California telehealth wall that passed in 2011. So that's one thing that we did. And we were also, what we do is, at least in California, we run a coalition of 70 statewide organizations focused in on telehealth policy. Now, while we don't, we don't lobby or advocate, you know, the members, um, we keep them informed and they are able to go forward and do what they can if like their, their structure allows them to do that. We have also um, advised on the federal and the state level when asked about policy and asked about what do we think potential impacts of X policy might have. And we've been able to provide answers for that and like background information. And one of the things that CCHP also does is we do point out what are the barriers, what are the issues in existing policy to make people aware of like, this is a spot you might want to look at if you're interested in changing some type of policy for telehealth. So those are some of the things that we've done over the years. It sounds like it's a lot of, you, know, you want to gather the data, let the data make the best decision at the time, and then focus on really, right, that policy modification and seeing mm -hmm. how we can update it and go from there. Given, you know, where CCHP is at right now, looking kind of into the future, let's say five years from now, what is your kind of goal? What are you hoping that the organization has accomplished? In five years, I hope that telehealth is not an unfamiliar concept to the consumer. Prior to COVID-19, there was still a lot of, of confusion or just simply unawareness of the average person on what telehealth is. You, you talk to somebody in the healthcare industry, they were probably familiar with it, but you talk to just somebody outside of that and they just had no idea what, what you were talking about. I'm I've been doing this for 10 years. I still have family members and friends who still aren't quite sure exactly what I do for a living. So for the non-sort of healthcare person, it was a foreign concept. That's starting to change, and COVID-19 would definitely have an impact on that and that awareness. So I'm hoping in five years from now that there would definitely be much greater awareness for the consumer on that of what telehealth is and that this is an option that they can utilize as well. And I hope to see it a lot more integrated into healthcare systems 
I cited California as a good example and like that had some great policies. So it is like very integrated in a lot of health systems like, you know, Kaiser Permanente here in California. They're very big on it. But it's it's not like that even throughout all of California and definitely not through like that throughout the country. Again, I, I do want to stress, and I'm not saying it is an absolute replacement for in-person services, but it should definitely be a tool that's available there to providers so that they can use if they think it's appropriate to use. So I'm hoping that when we, in five years that we get to that point and that the consumer knows that they can ask for telehealth and that the provider, when the consumer asks for it, they're able to provide it. I think that's a very admirable and achievable goal. You know, I think we will see the national conversation shift as we see telehealth used throughout this pandemic situation. And then I think hopefully, too, folks will call upon uh, entities like CCHP to guide them through what is the best practices, what does the data show, how should we be going about and making these important decisions for how healthcare should be delivered in 2020 and beyond. Looking right now, what do you think is the most pressing issue in your field with regards to telehealth policy? You know, what do you think Uh is most important outside of COVID? It's related to reimbursement, but a specific issue in reimbursement, and that is the which providers can use telehealth. And and by that, I mean a lot of like the reimbursement policies I said had limitations. And one of the areas they limit were who can use it, what type of provider can provide it. Normally people, when they think about telehealth, they think, oh, doctors and nurses provide it. But yes, but there's other health professionals who use it to provide services as well, such as physical therapists, occupational therapists, speech pathologists, and so forth. And they're usually the ones that are not considered within policy. So that is I think one thing that needs to be addressed, it's in that reimbursement side of things, but it's sort of like a subset in the reimbursement of, you know, let some of these other healthcare providers, healthcare practitioners utilize telehealth so they too can provide services as well. And I think that hits on another key point too of these uh, external providers, OTs, PTs, those individuals um, who could be servicing folks who might find it hard to get to clinics or or folks who might need more constant care. I think that's a really good point to bring about too, is we should not just be focusing on, you know, advanced practice providers or MDs and nurses, but these supporting individuals within the healthcare workforce. I think that's a good point. This is kind of our, our flagship question for the podcast. What is one thing that you thought you knew, but were later wrong about? You know what, when I first started out in telehealth, my, and I would go in and talk to a policymaker to, to just discuss it. They would just say, how can you do it? You can't touch the patient. And for the longest time there, that felt like that would never change because it just like, just seemed to be like the question that I kept getting was like, you can't touch the patient. So I thought it would never change that the switch would not be made, that they would like finally understand telehealth or it would take a really long time because for like my first, you know, two or three years, that was the struggle. But really the shift happened a lot faster than I thought it would. I thought it would be, you know, oh, this is going to be like five to six years. But really after we got past the the third year, you we kind of saw like, you know, a more openness to it from policymakers. So I was wrong there and then I was thinking it was going to take a lot longer than it did. 
and it's it's kind of happened in waves and i'm not and part of that i think is like how the technology has developed it's just gotten like more sophisticated each year where you can just do more things and i think that's definitely helped in the conversation and now you've gotten COVID 19 which has like super accelerated the conversation a bit but that was definitely something that surprised me in that when i first started in those first couple of years it's like oh it's just going to take forever to get people educated and it actually happened a lot sooner than i thought it would that's great to hear that you had this right initial expectation that it might take forever for this to get going you know i have this question that's posed to me and i'm not exactly sure how to surmount it and then just watching it kind of through different focal events you know come into the provider lingo come into the the policymaker, you know, vernacular side of things. So I'm, I'm really glad that it has turned out so well. And I want to thank you for coming on the podcast today and chatting with us about these very important issues. And, you know, we were very happy to have you here. Well, thank you for having me, Steve. It was a pleasure. One last point for today. A lot of us are going on week two or three of social distancing. We all know this is a tough time for folks. If we can take a few minutes this week to catch up with friends and family, it can make a huge difference in someone's day. Check in with others, keep on keeping on, and stay safe out there. This episode was hosted, edited, and produced by Steve Sonier. You can reach our podcast team at cph-gradambassador at uiowa.edu. Thanks for tuning in this week.